or Barigapod podcast. This is Dead Cinema Society, a show concerned with the revitalization of cinema out from entertainment. My name is Chris. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st installment of Dead Cinema Society's podcast. Today, the boys and I review the 2021 BAFTA-nominated The Mauritanian, starring Jodie Foster and Tahir Rahim. This legal drama, if you will, reveals the true story of Mohamedou Aoud al-Salahi, who was imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay. It is a really, really fun, provocative conversation that you can listen to here, or head over to our YouTube page, become a subscriber, like a video, post your thoughts. With that, we give you the Mauritanian. All right, Chris, take it over. I absolutely loved this movie. Oh. I thought it was excellent. I thought the movie uh, definitely shows. hmm? Was it entertaining enough for you, Chris? I don't even think it it was. So it was entertaining in the way that I was was so interested. Because I I knew, uh, unfortunately, I knew he got out. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like a suspense like, is he or isn't he? But the process of which he went about that was super interesting. And it definitely shined a light on, you know, uh, unfortunately, the failures of the American system when it comes to extrajudicial and uh, kind of terror suspects. Uh, I thought that the acting on a lot of the actors was subpar, uh, specifically Benedict Cumberbatch and Zachary Levi were horrible. <laughs> Uh, every time I saw them on screen, I was like, someone get these people an accent coach because you guys are not pulling it off. But if we literally, and I wish he was here, if we left it with the interpreter and Mohamedou and, uh, wow, <laughs> I want to say Julie Louis-Dreyfus so bad, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> what is her name? Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Foster. Thank you. <laughs> with Jodie Foster and on honestly a little bit Shailene Woodley, I would have been super happy. Dahar. Uh, let's, say, Tahar. let's say Tahar played Tahar. What's Tahar's last name? Rendir, I believe. Tahar Rendir played Muhammadu. Um, Amazing. My friend. My friend. I, wa- I want him to see every and every. I want him to be ev- everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, I agree with you on some of the things you're saying, but I'll bite my tongue for my turn. Um, sure. Allah Safi is my friend who played the interpreter. And then um, who else did you mention that you liked? I liked Shailene Woodley like a little bit, even though she was kind of a wet blanket. Uh, but I mean, uh, the gentleman who played, uh, the, the, the kind of operator Kent was okay. Yeah. 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 But for all of that, I give the Mauritanian an 8.4. Spicy rating. It's a very spicy rating. That's a spicy one. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Paul. Well, thank you, Chris. I, too. Uh, you know, this is the movie. This was a challenging movie because I figure what we're going to talk about is do we want movies that entertain us? And largely because of COVID fatigue, I kind of needed one. I needed a paint by the numbers, Hollywood, put it in a box, deliver it to me, make me feel good about the $40 I just spent. Obviously, that would be if I went to the theater to see it. But in the cozy confines of my home, I spent $20. We made popcorn. And it fulfilled my expectations. Now, of course, critically, this is a perfectly packaged Hollywood product for the Academy 
peers and the foreign press, and it has notes in it that probably will ring hollow for the rest of the reviewers here on Dead Cinema Society, but for pure entertainment purposes, a little bit, he said goodbye to COVID fatigue. I thought everybody showed up uh, more than serviceable, and it was entertaining, which I think is a running thesis of our show, of whether we've let these entertaining movies here or not. But for me, much like Chris, it, it was north of 8, and it was uh, 8.3. Hey, Paul. Oh, my name on it. Paul. Paul gives it an 8.3. Very nice. And I will pass it to Aaron Mann. Ah, howdy. <laughs> um, I'm back. Yeah, there was a helicopter going over my house, so I was like, I'm going to mute that. Um, the Martanian. This, this was uh, a delightful ride for me. Unlike Chris, I had no idea of this story. So I had no idea how it was going to end and, you know, all the following cards where they give us details of what happened to him. You know, it, it was always, it was all a shock to me. So, you know, this is kind of one of those movies where um, it, it became a history lesson for me and a bit of an eye opener, if you will. Um, I think it's a movie that everyone should see. You know, I mean, it's in the theaters now. I think it's uh, a good movie. We're, we're not anywhere near a masterpiece. Um, the acting was really good with our main actor. I'm not going to pretend to uh, pronounce his name, um, but he he did phenomenal. I really like that. I mean, it's not easy to get tortured and really commit yourself all the way. And um, he really did. Um and yeah, Cumberbatch was a miscast. So, so bad. Um, for all of that, I am going to give this film an ooh, an eight point one. Eight point one. Made it. Made it. Yeah, nice. you guys are all <laughs> that are... fun. What's that? I said for all that fun they gave me. <laughs> yeah, you guys are all kind of uh, in the same ballpark right now, um, and I don't disagree with anything you guys have said so far. I think you guys pretty much hit all the notes, um, and I agree with you all. You all. Um, there's nothing wrong with entertainment at all. Um, uh, I, do, I do think that this film falls way short of being a great piece of art. Um, <clears throat> But the acting of Tahar Rahim mm. uh, is really what makes this film, for me, as high as it is. Uh, I don't think that it gets even higher than a seven for me without his performance. Um, for me, the film felt like there would have been... Uh, it, it maybe would have been more well-served as a documentary because it felt to me... Like it was basically just a presentation of information rather than a film, um, kind of just hitting all the all the marks to tell this story. It's an important story to be told. Um, I'm not at all shaming the efforts or or the 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 choice to make it um, a film rather than a documentary, but it did just feel like a presentation of information. 
um, to me. With all that said, with the acting of Tahar, um, I did enjoy myself, and I give this film a 7.7. All right. Nice. Didn't go through, but that's fine. That's because I'm used to not having to do that anymore. (laughs) No, it's fine. We got the picture, Yoshi. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What classic. That's what I needed, Chris. What's the average? (laughs) I will tell you in a moment. Did I get did I get it? Did I snag it? I don't know. We'll find out. Come on. Hold on. on. I have to do this again because I'm not hundred percent sure certain that I added this correctly. So what I'll do is I'll just Tahar. Tahar Rahim. I got it. Yeah. Definitely check out The Prophet. Yeah, The the Prophet. Really, really great film. And and he kind of disappeared for a while, I feel like, from the limelight after that one. All right. So the final score for The Mauritanian is an 8.1. Let's go, Yeah. Exactly. Aaron, man. Nice one, Aaron. We're rocking the 916. Aaron Man all weekend long at Birdcage Mall. Oh my god. Thank Birdcage God, the Birdcage We bird more than just pavement here. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Musical trivia uh, there. Yeah. Paul, you should do commercials for us. Um, <laughs> so my friend Ala Safi, who is on The Chosen with me, will be joining us at a future time. To give us some insight on the making of this film, he played the interrogator uh, in the film. Not the interrogator, I'm sorry, the interpreter. As uh, well as? Uh, as well as his sort of friend uh, that's in the neighboring outdoor cage, uh, or whatever you want to call that fencing area. Um, so in the film, when you get a glimpse of that character, he's like a black man. Uh, but Allah who played the interpreter in the military uh, interrogations actually was the voice of that character. So I'm not sure why they did it that way, but Allah played two different characters in the film. Yeah, that is a great talking point. And I was so glad that you alerted us to him. It was, it was just, you could not have timed that perfectly because uh, if I were, if you asked me right when you texted us that he'll be on our next show, I'm like, what stood out in the movie? And I was like, okay, they used his voice on the other side of that fence. Now, was that, and I want to know that story, so I will allow you to ask him that question. But We'll, we'll have to ask him together when he comes on because I don't really know the decision-making on that one. But it is interesting because I don't know if it was intentional, and maybe this happened with you guys too, but for a minute there I was thinking that the director wanted us to believe that the government was setting him up and that this – that's was was actually too. the same character pretending to be someone else. Yeah, you you mentioned it in your um, in your review and rating of the movie Yoshi, and I don't know if you've seen some of Kevin McDonald's other work, but yeah, this is his his, his backyard is is documentary, um, and so it's interesting the the point you made about a lot of facts presented in a documentary like way. I actually enjoyed. And it allowed, I think, maybe some room for the actors to kind of tell us what was how they were feeling, both from our side and obviously the other side. And 
you know, maybe I don't want to get into it, you know, too hot right away, but he's done some really good work. I think he has a good handle on documentary film making uh, from some of the, he's done one about the Munich disaster, the Munich Olympics with the, mm. you know, killing of the Israeli uh, wrestlers. And of course he's done last King of Scotland, which you could argue had a, you know, kind of a documentary about Idi Amin and, um, and, and one other that the name escapes me um, more recently. But yeah, you made a really good point. I thought it actually served the movie in various scenes. Of course, one in the interrogation scene that I would love to. I have lots of questions about that. Questions for Allah, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, if we're, yeah, if, you're, if I'm going to take the floor for a bit, because that scene, interestingly, uh, you know, I want to know, like, how it was constructed because, um, you know, the U.S. intellectual military might has, you know, it's sort of, in, it's in the backdrop and the foreground of Guantanamo Bay. And I don't know what it was like for prisoners there and putting four prisoners in this room and, you know, allowing, you know, two guys from Langley to sort of back off. They don't have to be too hostile. We have an interpreter who um, is, to some degree, you know, could play both sides. And then we have Tahir, who has to, who's, you know, like, I want to know, like, how that scene was set up, what was going through the mind, what the director wanted, because there was no need for anybody to go over the top on it um, because of circumstances that I think we've read about, certainly after the fact, where it was just the threat of U.S. military might was enough and you will get us what we want. And we're just trying to do this in a very folksy, very direct way. We're going to feed you. We got an interpreter, someone who speaks your you know, native language. Let's just see if we can get the information out. So without that threat, it really allowed to hear, I think, to, to play a little bit and um, our interpreter to play a little bit and allowed the Langley boys to back off of what we may have seen when somebody's in the box on a crime procedural show or any other movie where we've seen an interrogation sequence where it didn't need to be hot and maybe because it wasn't hot enough for maybe, you know, some of us here on the panel, maybe it, you know, it didn't allow the actors to really, you know, find a, you know, find maybe more breath in, the, in, in their characters and in that scene. But I, I loved what, I would love to know what McDonald, how he set that up. Like there isn't a lot you need to do. It should just be the, the, this sort of existential threat is here. We just need to bring that life, even if that was like the fifth character and it's up to everybody to sort of play their part. And I thought to hear was just great to just keep it nice and measured, you know, and to, to allow us to feel through him what it must've been like for anyone to be grilled about nine 11 or dealings thereafter. So it was, I thought it was a really well done scene. I'm sure the friend has a lot more details. Yeah. we'll we'll definitely ask him all kinds of questions when he joins us next in a couple of weeks. Uh, I was very familiar with this story through the Radio Lab series um, on this particular story. I listened to it years ago. It's like a five or six part um, podcast series that Radio Lab did. Um, Radio Lab kept it much more, and maybe more information has come out since, which is why this film um, decided to paint painted in much more obvious innocent light. Uh, but Radiolab, when they did the series, they left it much more open to, like, they're not sure who to believe mm. kind of thing. Um, 
So I found it interesting that Kevin McDonald and the people involved in this project basically took the position that um, that Mohamedou is in fact innocent. Now, obviously, we can all agree that he wasn't that that he wasn't handled properly. And if you're proven innocent in court, then he should not have been held there seven plus years after the fact. That's not really a question. But Radiolab, as left leaning as they are, they were admittingly not really sure who to believe. Um, <clears throat> so since we. Chris and I were familiar with the story. Aaron and Paul, let you. I'll start with you, Aaron. Since you were just watching the film unfold, did yeah. you feel like he was innocent or guilty? Like, how did that story progress for you? Yeah, for me, it was uh, innocent. You know, there's no reason he should have been held like that for so long. You know, um, it just was a complete misuse of power. And not only that, I mean, just the Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it's those facts at the end where it was something like only seven of the 300 prisoners or seven, something. 700 prisoners. Seven of the 700 prisoners actually have uh, charges on them, right? Right. And three were acquitted. Yeah. So that, like, that's just not okay. You know, like what... You know, it's like history is written by the winners and the rules are just, it's just dished out by, um, yeah, there's no, there's no court of law or justice in that system. So to me, it was, um, yeah, I, I took it. I mean, maybe that's how, I don't know anything about the story. So the, the story painted me in the direction that he was innocent. So that's what I believe just based off of how it was presented to me, but I don't know the details of this behind what this historically gave me. So I think that fictional character that they created, that was the one that Benedict Cumberbatch's character was sort of trying to pry information out of, you know, the friend that he would always see Zachary at these parties, Levi. Zachary Levi's character, which was not a real yeah. person. Um, he, he sort of, they used that character to essentially say that we don't really like need anyone to be truly guilty but somebody has to pay the price for what these other people did and so basically if that is the truth of what the government w was feeling and 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 what they were trying to achieve they were just essentially torturing people until somebody uh, admitted that they were you know guilty of of these charges and so their mindset according to the film was Someone needs to pay. Let's just find somebody who's closely enough related to the scenario who we can make pay. Yeah, and I think obviously it played out in the church scene. We've seen that, you know, where I'm going to see, I'm going to, you know, you make sure he pays for it. You know, one of those things. And, I, and I'm sure the actors get their poor lines. And they're like, oh, my God, I got to be the shrew. I got to be the shrilly uh, uh, widow. Okay, all right, let me see if I can. Maybe maybe they'll give me some room here. Um yeah, it's yeah, it's sort of uh, kind of makes you cringe a little bit, but it's sort of the necessary part. But it also informs a much larger theme that you just touched on, which is, um, yeah, do, were we deep into some biblical retribution? Okay, eye for an eye. We've got to just find just find a, a living body that will admit to this, and now we can, uh, you know, put this on the American public. We have found it. We found our answer. This extrajudicial thing, as you know, Chris pointed out at the top of the show, this worked. 
you know, this uh, extra military effort, this all worked. And, uh, you know, again, you're not, you're still not healing lives as a result of this, you know, finding a handful of people out of 700 detainees that might have, you know, been loosely connected with this. And I, I, to your point, Yoshi, you know, if, uh, if I'm answering it, is, is, um, I love the, I love the duplicity. I love the fact we couldn't quite. And I think, and I would say that if you're the performer as well, you're an actor, you want that duplicity going in. You get, that gives you a midline and you get to be on one side or the other. You can't quite explain away why you're taking a call or what you're doing in Germany or why you're deleting your phone or, you know, and it's, and he's savvy enough to know what his local police is like. And he has to imagine as he magnet, you know, sort of pulls back from that and realizes that this escalates and I'm shipped out of here and I'm exported to some godforsaken island in the middle of the ocean. This could get really, really bad because I know how it is in my backyard. So I, I loved that he got to nuance that because we didn't know if he was right or wrong. He was in really bad circumstances. And I think it, it helped our lead inform the story and it certainly i'm sure was a hand if not heavy really heavy from kevin the director who said yeah this is what i want to do because he's obviously got documentaries in background he wants us to have that conversation so i think it's a really fitting question that you just presented i think it could have been more nuanced i, th- I what the what the radio lab series achieved if we're looking at it as a story being told as an audience member of that story, every podcast episode ended with me having a different opinion of this man. So one podcast episode would end and I'd be like, this guy actually did plan 9-11. And then the next one would end and I'd be like, oh, this dude's innocent. And the reason why it unfolded like that is because the reporters of Radiolab actually were having this real authentic experience where they would uncover new information and then do a show and they would, through that information, think that this guy was guilty and then uncovered more information on the next episode because this was live reporting essentially every time they were doing these podcast episodes and that new information would then make them think that he was innocent and i think that this film could have served because you would say okay well you know they shouldn't take a real story and like infringe upon the realities of the story just to make it more dramatic but the story actually could have been more dramatic because it wasn't entirely obvious when they were trying to uncover the truth of the situation if this man was innocent or guilty. For instance, one of the things that the Radio Lab podcast, and it's been years since I listened to it, but I remember one of the things that they uncovered that made them think otherwise about this man's innocence was that he worked on Osama bin Laden's farm for years, essentially picking, uh, working the heroin fields, I think is what it was. I don't know. He was, he was working the farm of Osama bin Laden. Uh, one of Osama bin Laden's farm because Osama bin Laden was a huge farm guy. He liked agriculture and he liked farming. And so he was more closely associated with Osama bin Laden than the movie even leads on. So that's why I have more questions as the audience as to like, you know, like, yes, if I'm to believe the film, this man is totally innocent. Um, Regardless of how much he's involved in September 11th, I don't agree with the tactics of the U S military, you know, being just like the enemy and, you know, torturing this man relentlessly. And, you know, I don't know if there's any truth to the, uh, the rape, like they, they yep. raped him. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yep. Like a girl raped him in jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, uh, in Guantanamo, like, Money mask. well, it, she raped him, but it was also like to basically get into his brain as a man and saying like, you can't get it up kind of thing. 
But this is, this is, you know, it's interesting because once again, we have films that we're watching that are somehow related to each other that is not by design. But like, it makes me think of like the question of cruelty versus sadism, which is brought in in the act of killing. Um, but those were, those were sadistic scenarios that are our government, uh, on, you know, used against these Guantanamo Bay uh, prisoners. Like yeah. truly sadistic. That's like, mm-hmm. who, who thinks of that shit, man? soldiers in the u.s military yeah anything to get them to and then of course what was interesting too is you get to see how the torturers also want it to be over because they're they're also their psyches are being affected as well they're taking orders from up top to inflict this pain on this man and they have you know who who knows how true any of this is but the way that the story in this movie is that they want it to be over too they're like come on just please Say you did it. I don't want to keep raping you. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, you had it was great because I, I love where it came from. They probably, having cycled through this umpteen times, they saw the fruitlessness of this and they're like, you know, there's there. I think that's what for me registered as just real moments. Like, this isn't some line that is in an interrogation manual in the basement of Langley. This is a guy genuinely saying, hey, listen, let, let's get this thing over. Let's move along because. It's, you know, because what it was for me is that, look, we've got other detainees, we've got to cycle through, and we've got to start this whole process over, and I am a human being, I'm going to get eight hours of rest tonight, I'm going to get three, you know, three meals, I'm going to be fine, but I'm actually losing patience with all this, let's just move this along without undue force, obviously, we're going to leave that to the military to do what they want, but, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, the point you make, I mean, I love what you're offering about Radiolab, but again, you know, here we are in the context of Hollywood, and, you know, we can't turn this into a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour movie. Then we're in a documentary, which I'm sure McDonald can do expertly well. But to put all of this in a box and at least leave us with the impression, like, good or bad? Um, is there more to this story? To get us all to go to the library or Amazon and buy a book and get in, get deep into his autobiography and all the attendant circumstances. I mean, I think, you know, I think for that reason, you know, he did his job among among a few. Chris, being uh, familiar with the story prior to it, what was your experience watching the film? And politically speaking, how do you feel afterwards as far as, uh, you know, how it, how it unfolded and how much you believe and don't believe? Well, I believe all of it because all of it is true. Um, unfortunate as it is, I mean, this happens even today at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, these, these, I mean, not to the same level, obviously, because the enhanced interrogation techniques were ratcheted down. But shit still happens. I mean, waterboarding is still not technically uh, illegal. Uh, also, you have to consider what Gitmo is. It is a U.S. military base that is outside of the jurisdiction of the continental United States. So and and these people aren't citizens of the United States, so they are not protected by the same rights that we are. There is a you know Geneva Convention article about prisoners of war and what you can do to them. It's broken every day. Um, historically, at Guantanamo Bay, uh, they have used enhanced interrogation techniques on many, 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 many people. Uh, they get confessions, but as we learn through this movie and as you learn throughout history, is if you torture someone, they'll say something. It's not going to be true, but they'll say it to get it to stop. And as we saw in the movie, he confesses to 9-11 to get them to stop doing what they're doing to him. And, and he confessed to, I think it was hinted at that he confessed to being behind the millennial, the planned millennial attack, which they suspected him of being involved in, of 
being sent to, because one of the things that um, groups like Al-Qaeda and terrorist groups would do is they would have their members essentially claim to be disassociated with the group. They would move far away, but they would still be like a secret plant somewhere else. So that's how they would kind of spread their tentacles. And so our man Mohammadi moved to Quebec, I believe it was, for a number of years. And that is, and the mosque that he was um, serving, uh, because he's, uh, what's it, is it a hafti, someone who memorizes the Quran? Hafti, yeah. So he, he, yeah, so he had memorized the Quran, so he was doing service in Quebec, spreading the message of the Quran. But the very temple that he was preaching at, one of its members was the man who was stopped on the border coming into America to blow up LAX for the yep. millennial attack. Not to cut you off. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I was pretty much finished. I mean, th this type of thing happens every day, and I, I don't, I don't really necessarily, I, I, I believe him. Uh, I mean, we also have the context of time that we're dealing with, too. Uh, I'm imagining the Radio Labs uh, production, as it was coming out, they they weren't getting the whole story, and which is why their their opinions kind of shifted. Uh, with anything like this and anything to do with the government, everything's classified. I mean, even his book that was published after the fact, as we, as we saw in the credits, is heavily redacted. Um and it's it's unfortunate. And having having been uh, adjacent to the military, they really bring up these feelings. And it's it's much easier to do these torturous things to people when you don't view them as people. And unfortunate as it is, they still teach that. Yeah, the sort of hypocrisies of our uh, our great country are sort of exposed there. You know, I mean, yeah. Obama, for instance, the, one of the biggest merits he ran on was that he was going to shut down Guantanamo. Of course, that was a complete lie, and that's just one, one of the – I think that was a big part of why he even won, and that was a, a lie. He knew that was a lie from the get-go. He was never going to shut that place down. I mean, he, he ensured that it remained an operational facility for those seven-plus years plus, after he was proven innocent. Uh, you know, o Obama could have let that man go free, mm -hmm. even if he didn't shut down the whole thing, but he, he could have went in and said, hey – this man was proven innocent. Why are we keeping him there? He didn't give a fuck. Didn't he let him out in the end, though? Because he, he got out in 2016, yeah? Seven years after he was proven innocent, right? But I, I'm, I'm not saying that it wasn't wrong. I'm saying that he did get out under the Obama administration, though. Yeah, but I mean, what? But better late than never? Is that the... Is oh, that no, I'm just I'm bringing up what, what happened. Sure. Yeah, you see, it was still under their administration, but yeah. maybe maybe from pressure. I don't know. Maybe because the book was selling well, like you maybe. know, and, and he was getting pressure. But the, it's just the hypocrisy because right because then you have Obama who admitted that not having a plan the day after Gaddafi was overtaken was a mistake. But it's like, did he not learn anything from the Bush administration? And then he still tried to overthrow um, Assad, Assad in in Syria. And if it wasn't for us, the people speaking out against that war against Syria, Obama would have happily have gone to war with Syria. But if you want to look to an example of a, a shining example of us as a country coming together to stop a war, it's that moment where we said, fuck, no, we're not going to war with Syria. Um, and, but then he said, instead, he said, OK, well, then I'll fund Al Qaeda and ISIS to overthrow Syria. And that's essentially what Obama did. And so the hypocrisy there is that you have this film about. Are you confusing Al Qaeda with the Kurds? No, Al Qaeda. We didn't, and I, I don't think we gave money to Al Qaeda, but I maybe Al Qaeda wrong. and ISIS were largely uh, 
Well, they were attacking each other, yes, but I don't think we funded them. Well, we funded the the rebel group that was essentially trying to take over Syria, the Syrian government, and that was largely Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I, I don't know enough to refute that, but I don't necessarily think that's true, because if Obama giving money to Al-Qaeda, I mean, he, he, that would have been like front page news, it everyone coming... Been. It should have been. I'll, I'll look that up. Keep going. Yeah, please please fact check me on that one. I hope I'm not wrong about that. But I, I, I believe I've read that many times and I've seen that in my research. But uh, the, the hypocrisy of that would be that Obama administration, Bush administration, our government, let's just say our government, put all this effort into finding out who was assisting al-Qaeda in September 11th. And torturing them for many years to figure this out, only two years later, fund that same group for their own benefit in taking over Syria. So it's just like it's it's just like when it benefits you, it's okay, but when it benefits them, it's not. Um, while Chris fact checks that, You're we'll right. get back. We'll get out of. I'm right. You're right. Uh- CIA Operation Timber Sycamore. Timber President Barack Obama secretly authorized the, United, the CIA to begin arming Syria's embattled rebels in 2013. In 2017, U.S. officials stated that with extreme certainty that Timber Sycamore would be phased out as possible funds are being redirected to, at that point, ISIL. Which is was ISIS and, and al-Qaeda working together to over, overthrow yep. the Syrian government. So, so that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is our government for you. We'll torture you for 14 years on an island in Cuba because you worked for the enemy. But that enemy is going to become our friend in a few years because we have an enemy that's similar now. And so it's like, who's the good guys here? Well, I mean, do you really like blame these countries for hating America when we spend like 20 years bombing the Middle East? It's been more than 20 years at this point. Yeah, more than 20 years. I mean, we we, we have seven-plus Middle Eastern countries that we've funded uh, regime takeovers. Like, it's... Well, we'll get into this in the other discussions, but we've been doing this not even in the Middle East since 1946. Those French need to get out of Vietnam. Yeah, the the whole Vietnam War. They're evil people. Vietnam, Cuba, list every potential communist country since 1945, and we have been there. Yeah, South America as well. Indonesia. Indonesia, classic. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah, that's that, and that conversation's coming up. Like, like, and, and that's why this show is incredible. Again, I've said this ad nauseum, but like, when I was watching Active Killing, I had already seen this film, and so that was still with me, and I was like, wow. Like the, the whole act of killing thing is totally influenced from Western culture and from Western regi- like ways of doing things. So uh, to to try to orient the conversation a little away from politics and back towards like the film itself, um, the reason why I feel like it was a little too documentarian for my liking is the film was best. I think we can all agree is when Tahar was on screen, right? Yeah. Well, there were certain cuts away from Tahar's performance that were in service of this documentary style that if you would have just brassoned it and kept the camera on Tahar for like five straight minutes, like I feel like that act Tahar was robbed of some great moments because I wanted him, I wanted to milk the performance more, but we kept cutting away to Jodie Foster. We kept cutting away to other people. 
every time we were on Benedict Cumberbatch scenes and all these other scenes, I was just slowly fading away from the film. The more Tahar, the better for me. What did you guys think? I want to bring this up really quickly, and it might have been just how I was watching it, but did anybody else notice the constant aspect ratio changes? Yeah, they did that for time lapse, you know. But that's so weird. Like, when he's first getting brought in, it's it's a square or four by three uh, ratio, and then they do widescreen, four by three, widescreening, and it's like, what technically why does that matter was it intentional was it made us to like focus on one thing and it typically was in when you're in gitmo uh and like in the past almost where it was like everything's kind of square are they what? trying to get it to feel like security camera footage or, or what? no i no. think you're doing aspect ratio of what a television would show in the year 2000 or the year 2001 that was- makes sense 2001. Okay, now we're in 2001, 2002, 2003. Okay, now we're back to real, you know, present time. Boom. Interesting choice. Yeah, I I don't know if I really cared for it though. Like it I saw it too, Chris, and it was like it was not enough like I would prefer some other techniques, you know, maybe a a vignette or a smoky lens, I don't know, whatever to signify we're like back in film noir. you want to make it a film noir <laughs> yeah give me some film let's uh take away the color let's uh do some harsh contrasty lighting let's get some oh. <laughs> some shutters and then open them slightly and then light shutters. them from back <laughs> yes exactly that's what i want but yeah i mean i think uh benedict cumberbatch was a miscast i mean there's a hundred other amazing actors we could have put in that role yeah, and it was very obvious that this was a a uh, huge hurdle for him to figure out this accent. And I don't want to see an actor at this level struggling. Maybe not struggling. I mean, he he did it okay. Yeah, struggling. I don't, think, I don't think he was struggling at all. I think he did great. I think that it literally is just a miscast because mm-hmm. we, the audience, know Benedict Cumberbatch too well. To, yeah, to he's know- too known. Yeah, we, we can't believe this. And if we have any suspension of disbelief at any point, it's going to hurt the film. And that's what happens when you miscast a British man that we all know very well doing this deep southern accent, a character that he yeah. can't relate to at the end of the day. He can't relate to this guy. Yeah, like why are you there? Like that's not that's not your history. That's not your person. Like just why? Why did they cast him? I don't I don't get that. Because it's all. a Hollywood picture. Well, it's a Hollywood picture. Yeah. batch on that's the poster it. sells yeah. tickets and right. that's it. But there's more there's so many other actors that sell tickets, you know. Yeah, but this is this was this is this was the offering for Academy peers, Academy judges, Academy votes. This this had to have somebody who was Academy Award winning or Academy Award nominated as they went through the whole thing and he of course qualifies with uh, geez, does he qualify with both BAFTA and Academy Award? Yeah, because it's a UK film. UK film. Yeah, so, but uh, he's not winning any awards for this. He this doesn't. This is not a performance that's like, oh wow, did you see him in that? No, he's he's a supporting character to this. You know, it's just a move along of plot. And honestly, if he's not in the film, it's still a great film. It's still, or if not better, you know, like it's. He's not an accessory to this film, and I really don't see why he was there. Well, he's there because of money, but yes, 
what this type of a role show me a no name i want a no name actor in this role i want to believe that this guy experienced something along these lines i want him in that black american hat you're wearing with that black american flag behind you i'm ready let's go now give me your you know who needed this role give me something gravelly and hickory in your voice and break it down (laughs) here and all the balls this martinian is innocent you know who needs this role who's that shout out to sal landy he should have booked this sal landy would have killed this role i think so he's he's a new yorker though he's a new yorker but it's still it didn't have to be a southern guy it could have been a new, you know, it just needed to be a hard-ass military top general kind of situation. I want to see somebody like Sal Landy where he is a hard-ass. He's going after the guy. You know, he doesn't care who takes the fall, but then he sees some evidence and you get to see an emotional change. I just, I didn't well, he, buy this yeah, guy. He wasn't necessarily a hard-ass, though, and it was an interesting sort of microcosm story going on within the film of that character essentially – he thought he was chasing a real bad guy from the from the jump. You know, his friend was one of the pilots on September 11th that was killed. His throat was slit moments before they hit the tower. So for him, he's seeking real justice. And as soon as he finds out that there's anything fishy, you know, he he's out. You know, so that guy was morally clean in this in this situation. He wasn't this kind of like hard nosed military man who's willing to do whatever he has to do to fight these terrorists. Yeah. I just didn't, I, even when he found out it was his friend and they were at the funeral, uh, there was something missing. I, I didn't feel the emotion on him. No, I, 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 I didn't feel him take it. You know, it's like, I just, I needed better performance there. And I, I don't know if he was trying to be subtle about it, but to me, it didn't land. I didn't feel anything from him in those moments. Aaron seen that stick stuck with you the most. The scene that stuck with me the most. Oh, man. Um, or if anyone is ready with that question, go. Yeah, I need, some, I need some seconds here <laughs> to think. Uh, just when he's pulled out of the party. Uh, I loved it. And unfortunately, it's probably Homeland influenced our Showtime, my Showtime favorite. But there's nothing. Uh, it's such a realistic moment if you've been in a foreign country and been with uh, police who were smoking cigarettes and throwing them on the ground. Just his heart racing, his mother knowing that this might be the last time I see my son, just how corrupt your local government is. I mean, it was just standout because he's, he's just sort of, he's trying to negotiate with local law enforcement. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> there's no chance, you know, somebody's going to be joining you in your car on the way to the station. Um, so that was just a standout, really set the tone. And it was interesting because to a degree that small itty bitty scene might not have that tonally might not have been captured in other parts of the movie. Again, up for argument, but just great. Yeah, I got for a me, scene actually. Uh, oh, for me sorry. for me, I think uh the scenes that stuck out the most what was was when he was being interrogated by those two uh, public officials, I don't know what positions they held, but the black man and the, and the white man, the black man who smokes the cigarettes and the, and the, and the white guy, the kind of CIA. CIA. 
Yeah, so the, the, the scenes between them three and Allah, my friend who played the interpreter, I think whenever they were in that room, things were really heating up and felt like it was the best acting of the movie. 100%. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, even those two CIA agents were doing great performances, and I love just how, like, there was moments where, like, they were, like, kind of buddies because, like, they could sense that this guy was just, like, a smart dude. And it's like there's just moments in that room where it's like they don't, no one even wants to be doing their assigned duties. Say it. Keep saying it. That's it. They just that want is to it. be, you know, buddies or, or, or like, yeah. you know, wash, wash their hands clean of, of all this. But they have jobs that they have to do. And everyone's kind of stuck in this turning wheel. 100%, 100%, 100%, because there's no – fist pounding and table slamming were threatening you. It was like, this is some chapter in a dog-eared section of a CIA manual that they, they read and they go, we're never going to be like that. We're going we're gonna to pound these people. And then all of a sudden you get to that moment. You're like, no, you're going to become their friends. And that's the most powerful thing. You're going to empower this man to a point where he goes, I have to do something. You'll try. That might be up to the military might, but I think you captured it perfectly, Yoshi. That that is exactly it. That like I want to know about what he what he walked into into that scene. The four of them, like yeah. there was some agreement. There was no need for anybody to push. To hear have the reins, he could sort of control us emotionally, and he could be duplicitous and just kind of walk the line and maybe give us flashes of guilt and not so guilty. Um, and yeah, it was great. Yeah, I wanted more of that. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Uh, any Aaron, you got one? Yeah, I got. You know, there is a scene that stuck with me, and it's not particularly some banger of an acting sing, uh, scene. But I do want to give some credit to Jodie Foster because I, I do like her character and seeing the real images of who defended this man in real life. It was like, wow, look at that casting. That was incredible. And one of the scenes that stuck out with me, uh, with uh, Jodie Foster, was they were having a beer, you know, and like a bunch of the military guys are in the background surfing on waves, and they're drinking like whatever a mai tai in this in this room, and kind of talking about this case. And she's like, you know, what's funny about this is like a hundred years from now, people are going to be sipping my ties and visiting this place as if it was like an attraction. Like, do you remember when America did this? It's kind of like an Alcatraz. Yeah, exactly. Yep. There you go. It's like Alcatraz. It's like, we're going to all visit and go in the cells and, Oh man, do you remember this story? And look at all the history here. And it's like, she's just laughing. It's like, here I am sipping this drink on base here. And it's like, what, what is this? Like, this is embarrassing. I can't believe that this is okay right now where I am in history. And I know in 50 years or 100 years, this is going to be an attraction. It's like, how can this exist? And that scene, although very subtle, the writers did a great job because those lines stuck with me. And now I have that image of Guantanamo Bay and, you know, going there with family and going through the cells, it's like I have that image in my head like, oh, yeah, that's probably going to be a thing one day. It's just, Honey, uh, the yeah. U.S. government 
um, made this base here because they didn't have to follow any laws and they could easily torture people and, and, and almost kill them. It was crazy. Just 20 years yeah. ago, honey. You want to see the mommy, Can I go sit in the we four seat two chair? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, the tour guy. Oh, we, we got mugs. We got mugs. Automobile mug. We detained well over 600 of those camel riding mother. <laughs> don't feed the iguanas. Yeah, don't feed the iguanas. I love it. I'll, I'll say this, and then I, I think we're going to wrap it up, I believe, is where you're going with that. But uh, I, I'm not going to say who I know, uh, but I know someone who is a military interrogator. And none of the things that they, in this movie are effective at all. Uh, and they actually tell you to very calmly just be friends with them because you get more out of being like, hey, where are you from, man? Because most of these terrorists aren't rich. Their families are very poor and they turn to this life as like a last ditch effort to mean something or to do something. And if you say, oh, yeah, if you you cooperate, we'll, you know, maybe put you on the list for a visa for you and your family. And that's enough for them to be like, wait a minute, you you're going to let me be a citizen. And they're like, yeah, just give us some names and then we'll let you go. And like, yeah, they'll have to serve some time because like, you know, whatever crime they did or whatever. But if you give them a little honey instead of some vinegar you catch more bees. And that's what I've heard from most people that are in that position. It's just like, if you be nice and don't beat people up or torture them, most of the time they'll agree with you. But that's not how we do it in the Bay, Chris. Well, that's, it's not effective. <laughs> not in the GB, Chris. Not in the, I think the that bubble. that is an elegant way to wrap up the conversation, Chris. Um, so great conversation, guys. That is, yep. An 8.1 for the Mauritanian. Write that That's one down, Two Paul. pit stains out of two. Yeah. <laughs>